Welcome back to the Mindful Psychonaut podcast. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks, but hopefully today you will enjoy this episode and find it beneficial and informative, mind and thought provoking. So we are continuing from episode six, which was all about free will. Uh, it was only 20 minutes long. So if you haven't listened to that, I would recommend that you do that first. It's a nice introduction into the ideas that I'm talking about today um, and almost builds upon some of those concepts or just goes into them a little bit further. So if there isn't free will, um, then what do we have? Luck with determinism. And as uh, previously mentioned in that previous episode, determinism is the almost the state of the world the action that occurs now is due to the totality of prior events um, and obviously the luck implemented there um, you might be lucky to be born in a first in the first world and not in a third world country that's um, generally considered lucky because you have better uh, opportunities and chances to do uh, a more developed society. Um, obviously that's changing but it is that kind of thing where you didn't have any control over whether you were born in this place or this place or in this time or this time, this family or this family. Um, it's just luck. Everything you do or think arises from the prior causes that you had no part in choosing such as the society you were born in, the makeup of the cells in your body, and the influences from the out that come from the outside world. It's all to do with luck. What determines moments of extreme focus, or prolonged procrastination, or the degree of fear you may experience in any situation, it's all a matter of luck and prior causes. This view of a human experience cuts through the, of the notion of retribution, allowing for forgiveness of the self and others. <clears throat> a quick definition of retribution. Retribution is the act of punishing or taking vengeance for wrongdoing, sin or injury. And this concept is of great interest to me when many consider punishments as justified vengeance, but do not consider what actions may lead to the best behavior change. There is importance in the choices that you make and decision-making. Learning a language, for example, this will not simply occur. I will have to complete daily practice of language practice, which will eventually lead me to the acquisition of a new language. I'm not destined to learn that language, regardless of my thoughts and actions. That would be the case for fatalism. Effort, discipline, and choices all have key influences in our lives, despite the fact that they are determined by prior causes. Again, I return to the nature of conscious experience. Sounds appear in consciousness, as do sights, as do thoughts. I cannot account for the fact I want to learn guitar, but only so much that I will do occasional practice. I can't decide to make learning an instrument my top priority if it simply isn't my top priority. 
If I were at, if, if I were eventually to decide it was my top priority and to start practicing that instrument regularly, I cannot account for why at that precise moment it became my top priority. And I'm just going to play a quick clip from the Waking Up app, which is a great resource for these kind of topics um, and mindfulness practice as well. So it's just a couple of minutes. People sometimes ask, well, if there's no free will, then why are you trying to convince anyone of anything? People are just going to believe whatever they believe. Your very effort to convince them that they don't have free will is proof that you think they have it. Again, this is confusion between determinism and fatalism. Reasoning is possible, not because you're free to think however you want, but because you are not free. Reason makes slaves of us all. To be convinced by an argument is to be subjugated by it. It's to be forced to believe it, regardless of your preferences. Think about what it's like not to know something and then to know it. To learn something despite your prior ignorance or presuppositions to the contrary. To be placed in the grip of an argument that is valid and true. To be led step by step over foreign ground without spotting an error without seeing any place to put a foot or a hand to arrest your progress, to then be delivered to the necessary conclusion is the antithesis of freedom. You're about as free as any prisoner who was ever led to the gallows. It's the lack of freedom that makes reasoning possible. That's why I know an argument that worked on me should also work on you. And if it shouldn't work on you, it shouldn't have worked on me either. Reasoning is all about constraints. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Where is the freedom in that? It matters that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And it matters that we each can be made to understand that by being forced to think under the same logical constraints. Are you free not to understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4? Not if you do in fact understand it. Are you free to understand it if you don't understand it? Again, no. Right? Not until the understanding itself dawns in your mind. So whether you understand something or not isn't under your control. But the difference matters, absolutely. And knowledge on all fronts matters, absolutely. It's every bit as important as we imagine it to be. In fact, it's probably more important than most people imagine it to be. The physicist David Deutsch Okay, brilliant. So I know that topics that, that that quote there or that excerpt there of that uh, theory from the mindful the waking up app can be complicated and the rest of this podcast might be a little bit mind bending, but feel free to kind of rewind and go over parts that maybe just re re-listen to that clip because the first time I listened to it, it was very just hard to get my head around, but is an important thing to consider. Um, so the aim of mindfulness practice is not to think 
new thoughts or rid yourself of bad thoughts. It's simply to experience what consciousness is like in each moment. Ridding yourself of the illusion of free will can bring about positive changes to ethics and instances of hatred. If individuals are not free to think and act, what does that say about love? Uh, love isn't fixated on the underlying causes of one's behavior, but is concerned with the experience with that other person that may be enjoyable and pleasant. There's no freedom when laughing or smiling with people uh, in, in the presence of someone that you love. Um, in fact, those very actions uh, in, a, in that involuntary sense show how genuine that love is. But when thinking about hatred, to, to hate someone is to be consumed by the idea that us as individuals have free reign over the actions that we take. We have free will. Uh, that individuals could and should have behaved differently than they did. Whether this hatred is towards others or towards the self, there's definitely a lot of both of those things in, in this world. And an interesting example of Charles Whitman, who was a mass murderist in uh, the US who shot many people and murdered his wife and his mother. So Charles Whitman killed his wife and his mother by stabbing them in the heart then climbed a tower at the University of Texas and proceeded to shoot people at random before killing a total of 14 people and injuring 32 before he was shot by the police. And at first glance of this situation, most people, uh, I think you, yeah, most people would immediately think that the individual here is full of evil um, and, and that they would, they would hold a lot of hate towards this person for doing such actions, for murdering people in cold blood, murdering their mother and their wife. However, he left a suicide note stating that he found his behavior inexplicable. His mind was flooded by irrational thoughts and violent impulses. And he recommended that uh, doctors do an autopsy or along those lines, actually check to see if there was a physical disease um, that was causing him to be the way he was. And after he had been shot, the the note was found and he had that autopsy done to him and he had a brain tumor uh, pressing on the amygdala in the hypothalamus, which may have explained changes in his thoughts and subsequent actions as he was stating in his notes that they're kind of inexplicable. He has, he had these almost urges for anger and committing violent actions and eventually just couldn't, couldn't hold back. So how does this change things if actually the, obviously it's not confirmed, but it's likely that a tumor in that, in that specific area in the brain will have influenced that 
person's actions, uh, thoughts and subsequent actions. Should we hate Charles Whitman for what he did? Even though it was likely that the brain tumour was the very thing that may have changed his consciousness in such a way that led to the murder of 14 people. It's an example of physical events giving rise to thoughts and actions. You know, it could be being born into the group of a terrorist organization. And that's the, that's the physical event that then leads to you committing horrible actions in the future. Or it's having bad luck and a tumor, a brain tumor growing in a certain area in your brain leading to these um, unfortunate changes. If we had a greater understanding of the physical makeup of a murderer's brain that would cause them to think certain things, genes that would predispose, predispose them to violent actions, then it can be thought of as unlucky for one to have that makeup, as similar to the growth in a brain tumour. The hatred that is applied to humans under the notion of free will quickly dissipates if those that complete horrible actions are determined to do so by prior physical causes out of one's control. However, the urge for retribution and punishments as justified vengeance is real and it's powerful. There are likely evolutionary reasons for urges for vengeance, but we can ask the question of whether these tendencies are good and should be maintained. How can we ask that others behave in moral way and do not commit immoral actions if they are not the author of their actions? We can, and in most cases we should. It makes sense to put someone in prison in doing so, if doing so will increase the well-being of others. The act of moving them elsewhere can protect others and themselves. Punishment can also serve as, a, serve as a deterrent for crime. These demands and laws that may be set out are part of the totality of causes that determine human behavior. Happiness and suffering are present without the notion of free will. If a wild animal were to attack you, resulting in the loss of a limb, the problem would be present. But if we were to swap the wild animal to a person with a weapon and the same loss of a limb were to occur, the problem would appear different. Under the illusion of free will, our subsequent experience differs between man and wild animal. To see the animal that attacked you and caused you the loss of a limb, you may not hold anywhere near the amount of hatred or the desire for vengeance as you would a person. However, if free will is an illusion, and in fact the way the world is comes about in more deterministic sense, then why should the degree of hatred or desire for vengeance be greater in human actions than it is in casualties of weather incidents or wild animals? You're not responsible for the genes that you have, the society you're born into, the experiences that you have, but it is part of the totality of causes, which may lead you to have the mind of a murderer. And to this extent, you may be seen as unlucky. To lock this person away is justified. It will protect others. 
With this far greater response of hatred, we often find ourselves in a dilemma relating to punishments as justified vengeance, because they deserve it. And this brings me on to an example of prisons in Finland. So I'm just going to play a quick clip. Obviously, you're just if you're just listening to the audio version of this, then maybe just listen to the next two minutes. Um, but this is a quick clip of prisons in Finland. This man is serving a life sentence for murder. I'm sorry, I'm a little body conscious, as you can see. I've gained a few pounds. A dip in the frozen lake behind the prison is part of his regular workout routine. No problem. It's okay. Okay, your turn. <laughs> Welcome to life in one of Finland's open prisons. There are no cell blocks here, just dormitories. Inmates come and go in their own cars. When Matty isn't at the nearby university campus, he's in his dorm room, studying for a career in tech. Some entrepreneurship books, marketing books, user experience, all kinds of uh, digital and uh, IT studies. And we have this kind of normality principle that prisoners should be treated equally even though they are prisoners, but they should have access to same services and rights as, as other citizens. In recent years, Finland has been named the happiest and safest country in the world. Citizens here enjoy generous public benefits, universal health care, subsidized daycare for children and free college tuition. Promotional films like this, produced by Finland's Criminal Sanctions Agency, Document how prisoners are eased back into society with work opportunities and help from counsellors. And the incarceration rate here is one of the lowest in Europe, a quarter of what it was in 1950. In Finland, only one in three former convicts ends up back in prison. Compare that to the United States, where two out of three get locked up again within two years of release. So, um... Re-education for Matty in this video can include things such as university degrees and working towards self-employment. And some would argue, and I definitely contemplated it myself, that they're treated too nicely and that they should not have the freedoms and the, nice, the niceties such as internet connection, education programs, um, and the freedom to, to, to move about when you've committed such a crime as murder. And this would be justified under the notion of free will. But as seen in the video, it's important to be aware that the, re the reconviction rate for prisoners, prisoners in Finland are roughly one in three compared to the US, which is roughly two in three. And the US prison system being very different to that in, in, in that it involves a lot more solitary confinement as punishment for the crimes they have committed. If the locking up of an individual is to protect the rest of the individuals in society, what good is there in further punishments once they are locked up? If anything, if an educational, if an education, internet and opportunities to learn are provided, 
the individual may return as a better person in society upon completion of their sentence, which achieves the goal of protecting and benefiting the rest of society. So it's, a, it's an interesting one. I showed my mum this, uh, this clip of um, the prison system in Finland and it's quite difficult to deal with if you were, you can look at it from an outsider's point of view, but if that was the person who had murdered your son or murdered your brother or your best friend, then would you feel the same? And I think it'd be quite difficult to feel that way, but um, interesting to contemplate nonetheless. So we'll move on to a bit about responsibility. If we don't have free will, then do we have responsibility over our actions? Um, so what is responsibility and why does it differ between individuals? Responsibility is the state or being answerable or accountable for something within one's power, control or management. If a basketball player who is a very beginner misses a shot, you wouldn't hold them accountable or responsible for missing that shot. They could have made the shot, but they haven't had much practice, so it was unlikely to do so. A professional player, though, who misses a shot, the responsibility for that action is now far greater, despite the action being the same. This is because we assume the better, more practiced player could have and should have made it. And this can relate to differences in child misbehavior and adult misbehavior. It makes sense to think that normal people have the general capacity to behave well and to not behave well, individuals could be punished and should be admonished to behave better in the future and deter others from behaving in such ways. To say that the professional basketball player could have and should have made that specific shot that they missed is to assume free will. You can say that the basketball player could have made a similar shot and the professional basketball player likely does make those similar shots. But something that was necessary for the successful completion of that specific shot was missing and it led them to failing it. It could have been that the required focus and effort for a successful shot was missing in that very moment. And because it was missing, they failed the shot. Was there free will in the effort that was given by the player leading to the failure of the desired outcome? If we could rewind time, everything, the universe being in the exact state that it was in before, would they have been free to put in any more or any less effort than they did in that very moment? And the, determinist, the, determin, the deterministic point of view is that they, they don't, they, they don't have that free will. And they would have done exactly the same thing, put exactly the same effort and failed in exactly the same way. <clears throat> All events are determined, determined completely by previously existing causes. The causes for that lack of attention or effort would be present if we were if we were to rewind time to see if the player could have done otherwise. So returning to the example of an adult and a child misbehaving, 
we place far more emphasis and responsibility to the adult than the child. To assume that the adult has more responsibility is similar to the professional basketball player. Maybe they started a fight with someone. Um, what are the necessary actions needed to prevent someone from fighting? A certain amount of self-control perhaps? Because in most situations, this self-control is present and fights do not emerge at every potential for conflict. To place more responsibility on this adult than a child is to assume that if time were rewinded, they would be free to have more self-control than they did and not start to fight. It is acceptable to assume that the adult normally has more self-control than a child does and in most situations would not engage in violence. Some condition in which they would be able to prevent engaging in violence was absent, such as necessary self-control. Again, the admonishment and the punishment of someone for acting immorally is necessary to deter the individual from completing similar actions in the future and to deter others from, complete, from committing such acts also. If we take a larger and wider view of the causality of someone's actions, we can return to um, the son of a terrorist. If you're born into this into this group, this uh, the son of a terrorist, um, that's unlucky. That is unlucky. And what sort of responsibility does that child have in committing moral and immoral actions? There's no, the child does not, is not born with a sense of right and wrong. And I think it's quite difficult to to put the blame it's it's rather challenging when you see in the news the tragedies that have occurred by um certain people across the globe and think why on earth would anybody do such a thing but if that's what you've been raised if, if you've been nurtured in a in an environment that promotes that kind of thing from the day that you're born why would you think otherwise? Why would you possibly believe the other things that are in the news? Um, do, are you even exposed to news like that? Do you, there's, it's difficult to put the responsibility on that child who then grows up to be an adult and commits horrible actions. Um, so why would it be different for others around the world, you know, returning to Charles Whitman. If Charles Whitman did not have that tumour in his brain, um, would he have completed the acts that he did? And all likelihood, it would have been no. Um, and it's, it's difficult to place more responsibility on, say, Charles Whitman, who did murder lots of people potentially because of this brain tumour and a child who was just born into the wrong place and, and the wrong family and the wrong society. And it's interesting to think about. And we finally come to the final part of the episode, which is 
if we don't have free will, then why do anything? Um, and the illusion of the illusion of free will arises through our distractions of how experience actually arises in consciousness. Some believe in what is known as compatibilism. And compatibilism is the belief that free will and determinism are mutually compatible and that it is possible to believe in both without being logically inconsistent. It suggests that an individual is free as long as they are not influenced by outer or inner compulsion, preventing them from acting on their desires. That is to say that an individual who feels like murdering someone and then commits murder is free to do so. However, this fails to regard the nature of consciousness and how thoughts arise. How is one free when doing what, one's, what, what one wants and desires, when the very desires are the product of prior events that you have no role in choosing? Underlying truths, we feel or presume an authorship over our thoughts and actions that is illusory. We do not choose what we choose. And we do not choose what we choose what we choose. So this would be returning to the uh, thought exercise or example from the previous uh, episode six on free will, uh, where you're choosing a film at random or you're having the free, here's, here's a free will exercise. Choose a film, that's your freedom. You have freedom to choose whatever film you want. Okay, so maybe four films popped up in your head for whatever reason, and you decided out of those four that you were gonna pick Finding Nemo. <clears throat> you did not choose what you chose. So those four things that popped up, did you choose those four things to pop up randomly? Um, so that's what I mean by saying, you did not choose what you choose, what you choose. Um, and, and you can play that idea, you can play that exercise of whether you have free will in that actual decision that you make. Uh, you're not free, so let's take cities for example, if you were to Think of a random city. So you probably thought of a city now. Why was it that you thought of that city? So you're not free to choose names of cities that you don't know, but there are lots and lots of cities that you do know are cities. Why did any of those possible, were you free to choose from any of those possible cities? Or were you free to choose the cities that did not arise to you? If I mentioned a city to you now that you knew was a city, but didn't pop in your head, were you free to choose that city in that very moment? Um, and you can repeat that quite a lot uh, going back to the films thing. You can just choose another film. Um, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting exercise. So when, when contemplating this idea, many will ask the question, why do anything? 
If everything is determined, then whatever should happen will happen. But this is confusion between determinism and fatalism. Fatalism subjugates all events or actions to fate or destiny, irrespective of thoughts and actions. Determinists do not accentuate a submission to fate or destiny, but agree that human action is determined by a causal chain of prior events. To sit back and see what happens, to attempt to do nothing, is itself a choice which will contribute to the, to the determinisms of action. It may also be quite difficult to do if you ever try to do nothing. You are no more in control of the next thing you do than being born into the world. The only tools available to you in consciousness are those that have been acquired from past moments. This view of ourselves being systems subject to influence can act in ways to change who we are and what we do, irrespective of free will. And the takeaway from this deterministic view of the world can, on its surface level, seem quite depressing. If you don't have free will, then why does it matter? You know, I'm not the author of my thoughts and actions, but I think it allows you to have less of an attachment to those negative feelings that occur and the emotions. And there's definitely less rationale for, for hatred. Uh, if people are simply consequences of their, that, that the prior causes, the, the totality of prior events that has led them to this moment, there's less rationale for hatred. Um, and there's definitely more rationale and room for compassion. So if you've enjoyed that episode, uh, do let me know what you think. Let me know whether you agree with me uh, or not, not with me, but the deterministic, um, not ideology, the deterministic proposition of, of, of the way the world works, whether you think we have free will, uh, whether you think it's fatalism or whatever it might be, whatever your thoughts are about this, questions, ideas, let me know, comment down below, share, share this with a friend, um, maybe make them scratch their head a little bit and tune in for another episode of the Mindful Psychonaut podcast.